0: Welcome to the Proclaim Podcast, where we sit down with missionary disciples and talk all things around sharing Jesus with others. Our
1: hosts are Brett Powell, Heather Kim, Jason Jensen, Eric Chow, and Amber Zolk. Okay, so welcome to the Proclaim Podcast. My name is Eric. I'm the director for Proclaim. I'm here with my co-host, Amber Zolk, missionary with Catholic Christian Outreach. And we have a wonderful guest with us, Sherry Waddell. Uh, from the Catherine of Siena Institute. Uh, She is a world renowned speaker, presenter, teacher that has offered a lot of wisdom around uh, intentional discipleship, uh, bringing people to discipleship with Jesus. Uh, She has a lot of wisdom and knowledge and we're so glad to have her with us. So welcome Sherry.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I really, you know, Vancouver is such a beautiful place. And of course, I'm a native of Seattle. Right. So yeah, right from your next door down south.
1: Yeah. So down you're familiar south. with our, our weather and the constant rain. And
0: I know it's November in the northwest, believe me. I'm sitting in Colorado where it's sunny and blue skies.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sherry, why don't you, uh, why don't we start first with a little bit of a personal introduction? Tell us about, you know, about you, about your story, and uh, your journey of faith?
0: Um, Well, I was raised on a totally different planet, uh, spiritually (laughs) speaking. Um, I was raised as a, um, so far out on the right-hand side of the Christian spectrum that there is no Catholic equivalent. Okay. Um, I don't even attempt to describe it, but basically we were extreme right-wing anti-Catholic uber fundamentalists, for whom no church normal church or denomination or anything was orthodox enough and pure enough um anyway so that's the environment i grew up and i grew up in southern mississippi okay so when i mean i mean fundamentalist i mean the real thing not your <laughs> northern fundamentalist. i mean how serious can they be um so, so that's that's the planet I grew up on, and um, and my working assumption, of course, was that the Catholic Church was literally the whore of Babylon. Uh-huh. Cetera, as a child, because that's what I was taught, um, I had a, a significant childhood conversion as uh, at nine, uh, when I went forward in a classic Southern Baptist revival meeting. Um, to accept Jesus as my personal Savior in that class, kind of classic old style, and then um, and then had a uh, as a teenager, I I sort of left the practice of the Christian faith for some, a few years um, because there was so little space in that fundamentalist world for a woman to be intelligent or to be anything, pretty mm-hmm. much. Um, and then uh, had another conversion, what I thought of then as my adult conversion because I was all of 20, you know, and so sophisticated. And, um, but, but revisiting the issue again um, as an adult and uh, basically had a turning point in Manhattan in New York City uh, sitting next to a dead cockroach. Anyway, it's a long story. <laughs> Um, but but in which I, you know, began the journey as a disciple again. And, uh, and then the Catholic uh, alter- possibility came real to me. I uh, went back to finish my undergrad and was looking for a place to pray during the day um, at the University of Washington in Seattle. And the Protestant churches were closed and the Catholic churches were open. And there was a large Gothic one a couple blocks from campus that I walked into and um, felt the real, I felt what I would now know is the real presence, but I didn't know it then. I felt a presence of God there that was real and was different than I had experienced in the Protestant world. And so that was my turning point. That was my bridge of trust. Went right over all the anti-Catholic stuff in my head and build a bridge of trust and that's why you and I are talking today so that's the very very short version um uh so uh, that parish was what which was a Dominican parish so I didn't realize it at the time also became the place where eventually um we founded the institute because uh after shortly when I myself became Catholic I started attending mass there and got to know the new Dominican pastor, Father Michael Sweeney, and it was the institute rose out of our collaboration. I kept sharing with him all this stuff in my evangelical background about lay people and missions all over the world, and you know, evangelism.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'd give him books, and they'd make him crazy, and he'd throw them against walls. And it was you know, it was this sort of, um, it was a, it was a somewhat not combative exactly, but you know, there was a lot, of, he was, he's from Vancouver originally. Okay. Um, so he was a Vancouver cradle Catholic and he never met anybody from my background before. And I knew almost nothing about the church or I didn't have the background. So anyway, but out of that discussion, we started collaborating and out of that collaboration, the Institute was born 22 years ago in Seattle at, okay. uh, in, so, um, that's kind of that
1: history, right? Right. And in 2012, uh, a, you wrote a book called *Forming Intentional Disciples*, and uh, that has—it's um, it, kind of spread like wildfire. There's a lot of wisdom and, and information that's that's helped disciples recognize and understand, um, you know, how how people. Uh, move towards uh becoming an intentional disciple. Could you share a little first a little bit about uh what is an intentional disciple and then perhaps we can dig into a little bit of the book?
0: It it just means it was just a term we started to use about 14 years ago um just a out of desperation because we kept talking about discipleship and we quoted all the magisterial documents and everything. And people just looked at us. It it wasn't going anywhere, wasn't connecting. So the summer of 2005, um, We were wrestling with this. We started to use the language of intentional discipleship. Just to mean you don't do this in your sleep. Um, It's not unconscious. It's deliberate. You're actually intentionally seeking to follow Jesus today and tomorrow and for the rest of your life in the midst of this church. Um, And it was very interesting, the response. People, it enraged people. I even had a little blog called the Intentional Disciples blog, which... Two weeks after I opened the blog, it started this firestorm across Mm -hmm. the internet and all these different Catholic bloggers across the spectrum. Who is this woman and what does she mean by intentional and what kind of an elitist, judgmental, you know, language is that? And honestly, I thought it was the most boring language in the world, but it just triggered Catholics across the spectrum. Um, And all it meant was, intentional, like, how did I, how did I end up talking to you? You know, I didn't just right. accidentally get onto zoom and end up talking to somebody in Vancouver. Um, it just means like, how do we do the rest of our lives? Um, it's just normal human stuff. But it for some reason, uh, to my complete astonishment, it started, it, it just triggered people. So, um, so we spent about 15 years working with Catholic leaders and uh, mostly in the U.S. but also outside the country um, around this issue of intentional discipleship and the thresholds of, you know, and things like that. And mostly um, until the book came out, it was we got a lot of pushback again yeah. for all the reasons we were triggering a lot of deep culture, Catholic cultural, um, issues that uh, that's how we learned where the triggers were by making people mad at us. Um, and, uh, so the book was really interesting because, um, I basically, it, it, happened out of the blue, a publisher who'd been talking to me about gifts discernment, wanted me to write a book on gifts discernment. They wrote me out of the blue at six thirty, in, uh, July, late July in 2011, and just said, "Oh, Sherry, I know it's I'm talking about a book. I had no time. And are, do you have any time?" And I said, "You know what? I think it's fine." But, um, but I am, uh, you know. In fact, I said I I had just drafted a book on evangelization to share what we had learned because the synod on the new evangelization was coming up in 2013. And I had just sketched it out. And I said, you know, I need to get this done and then I'll do your book on charisms. And she said, no, oh, no, give us everything you had. So I sent her my draft, my you know, sketch out of 12 chapters. Um, and seven year, seven hours, seven hours later, she wrote, she called and said, we want it. So they bought it in seven hours. It was like being hit by a lightning bolt. Hmm. And I had six months to get it out. So my entire life revolved on a dime. Okay. Um, And, uh, but it was the 15 years of failure and endless conversations and discovering what, uh, becoming to understand that in depth, the Catholic assumptions and cultures about these issues and all the conversations we'd had with thousands and thousands of Catholics and leaders through the gifts discernment process. That's what enabled me to write it. Okay. uh, Because I had spent Fifteen years learning what not to say, how not to, how not to talk about it. Right. Where you, where somebody might understand you.
1: Right.
0: But I, I did uh, warn them at the time. I said my publishers. I said, you know, we get when we do this live, we get lots of pushback. So you have to be prepared. And they said we're prepared,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and there was no pushback. It just, it went viral almost instantly. So
1: right. Yeah, No one could be more surprised than I was. Right, right. Yeah, the idea of an intentional disciple sounds simple by definition. You choose to follow Jesus and you follow his teachings and his way and, and you, you orient your life towards that. And yet the process to getting there and perhaps the internal wrestling and uh, the, the cultural influences can make it quite difficult uh, to move towards what seemingly could be a, like, uh, a simple definition and perhaps a decision it sounds simple but of course is is life-changing
0: it depends on where you're starting and increasingly in our culture in the 21st century especially in highly secularized uh, situations like the west coast yes. Seattle was very much that way Vancouver would be very much that way um, there's a lot of a lot of people grow up without even these categories they just it's just not there so they're starting a long way away even if they are baptized Catholics of course we know many of them aren't practicing and even if you're baptized you may not even have received sacraments of initiation you may not have even gone through sacramental prep your family nobody in your life is practicing mm-hmm.
1: uh,
0: so it's it depends from person to person but um, it's it's a much it's a longer and intentional journey now people will not I mean we living I call it missiondom. okay we have we're Christendom the old Christendom model where we presumed the families would pass on the faith and the culture would support it the larger culture would support you that's been gone really for uh, three generations now Um, in our setting People, most people will not make that journey. I mean, it will be very intentional. It'll be a something they choose and it'll be a series of deeper and deeper yeses and a series of deeper and deeper discoveries. Because a lot of things that those of us raised in deeply Christian backgrounds presume are not on their horizons yet.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Beyond the experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've experienced and have seen those progressive yeses, um, you know, particular movements in someone's life uh, where they've moved closer and closer to becoming an intentional disciple. And what I appreciate about uh, your book and what you've written in there is a little bit of a language that identifies perhaps some of those Categories uh, that that people might go through, and uh, you, you've you've referenced them as the thresholds of conversion. So why don't we get into that a little bit? Could you share us share with us the, the sure. thresholds of conversion? and Walk us through it.
0: Yeah, um, it, it's really fairly simple. Um, it originally, was this was discovered in campus ministry, uh, probably in the mid 90s or so and this is when the millennials were starting to show up on (laughs) campus that that was where the big cultural divide is millennials and younger anyway it basically you start with trust is there a bridge of trust in place lots of cat people raised catholic either there was never a bridge or it has been shattered for some reason and they've left if there is no bridge in place people will not darken our doors that's Mm -hmm. the main thing if somebody's Basically, in the pew um, or practicing to some extent, there is almost certainly a bridge of trust in place. May not be very strong, and you might be surprised about how odd that bridge is because it can be, take a lot of different forms, but it's there. But a lot of our people, and huge numbers of young adults, anybody under 40, uh, millennials, Gen, Gen Z, um, are what we would call their far. We, we talk about near evangelism and far evangelism and near evangelism is where at least there's a bridge of trust in place. So if you invite me to your parish or some social event or an alpha course or whatever, I'm, if I like you trust you, I might show up because there's you're you're my bridge of trust.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but a lot of people have no bridge. So that's mm-hmm. the first task
1: is mm-hmm.
0: rebuilding the bridge. If it doesn't mm-hmm. exist Um, And then that moves into curiosity, which is casual curiosity. It's not deep and profound, but it's just, hey, whoa, there's alternatives out there I didn't even know existed, like this whole thing of relationship with God. Who knew that was possible? Um, Or I'm interested in something about the church or what they believe or something like that. Um, And then what we are discovering, which is, this is a surprise. We're learning new things all the time. On the last couple of years, we've realized that even often leaders in our Catholic communities, they get to curiosity and they kind of get stuck there. They don't move beyond it. And to our surprise, we're discovering that some of our leaders who are really engaged in the community and very active don't yet have a personal relationship with God. That has really been stunning. And we learned by listening again, as we've done so often, because we've listened to tens of thousands of Catholics now talk about their relationship with God. So it's really important that move from curiosity into openness is where you you acknowledge personally to God, if God cares and if God's listening and if God's going to respond in any way, that you're open to the possibility of change. It's not a commitment. You're not saying I will be at mass on Sunday. Mm-hmm. I will go to RCIA. I will go to confession. You're saying I'm opening the door just the crack. If you're real God, and if you can hear me,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and if you care at all, I'm open. Okay. And that turning point is huge for people in our setting, in the in a postmodern setting like we have on the west coast for instance in North America um it's just really a crucial transition and and it involves them acknowledging to God and to themselves that they're open to the possibility of change
1: mm-hmm.
0: so we want to help them become more open and as they and that this is the stage where they can begin to maybe wrestle with who Jesus is and what he's done and he's the gospel stories about him and his teachings and his relationships and his miracles etc um and then as people become more and more curious there comes a point where they begin to we call it moving into seeking but it's meaning i'm i'm grappling with just the possibility of following jesus as his disciple i'm not making a commitment yet this is this is dating with a purpose. It's not marriage, mm-hmm. but this is like, are you the one? This is looking serious. Am I going to make a commitment that's going to change my life? It's that level. Okay. And uh, and so and then there comes the point where somebody says, "Yes, I will. I choose. I am choosing to follow Jesus as his disciple in the midst of his church." That's what we mean by intentional discipleship, and that's of course the beginning stage too. It's it's. It's a series of deeper and deeper yeses, right. if you know, like we said. Yes. And that's a journey that um, people need help to walk through. They need a, they need individual help. They need communities around them. We call them Ananiases, after the first mentor for St. Paul. But they're basically, you know, and I think this is a huge ministry, crucial ministry for uh, lay Catholics, especially, because there's no way a priest can, can possibly do all this for all of his people in, his, in the large parishes we have. But individual lay disciples can walk with people through this whole journey. They can help, they can be a personal bridge of trust. They can help people become curious. They can foster the move into openness and into seeking, and help somebody even, um, you know, sort of drop their nets, as, as we say. Absolutely,
1: yeah, absolutely. That area of trust uh, is is quite interesting, particularly as you've broken it down to the near versus far evangelization, and with the Proclaim movement, we are inviting disciples to uh, to share Jesus, to proclaim Jesus in, in their homes, in their communities, and Uh, each and every individual has a sphere of influence or a group of relationships that they uh, are face to face with that have different stories and they're coming from different places so it would be um, it's it's important to recognize and understand that near versus far evangelization so I'd like to maybe unpack that a little bit and and kind of get an understanding of what that you know what that might be. Well, what it's, it's something
0: rel- relatively new for us too. Near, what we mean by near is would the person under the right circumstances and if invited by the right person actually show up mm-hmm. to something? Okay. Would they come to an alpha course, for instance, or be part of a CCO group if their friend invited them? Um, so, or this would also include, of course, practicing Catholics, people who even either attend mass regularly or only occasionally, but there's some positive association. They've retained a Christian identity, for instance. They haven't jettisoned it like half the millennials in the U.S. have already jettisoned their Catholic identity, but they've retained it for some reason, okay? So that's what we mean by near. Um, Far means I've jettisoned the identity. Maybe I call myself a recovering Catholic, an ex-Catholic, you name it um or now i think of myself as a nothing or a nun okay i don't i'm not affiliated with anything i don't maybe i say an atheist or agnostic um lots and lots and lots of millennials and gen z people under 40 the majority are now far as opposed to near in other words there, we there, we have two simultaneous mission fields there's the ones that we're most aware of because because they might cross the threshold into our parishes or into our groups in a, uh, in a person's home or something. And then there's the people who are far that we will have to leave the building to connect mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. They may have Christian, a lot of them have Christian backgrounds. But in terms of where they are, how they identify themselves right now, they are far. Are imaginatively in terms of spiritual experience, in terms of culture, in terms of network of relationships.
1: Yeah, I think in Vancouver we'd have even more of those individuals uh, that would that could be far far evangelization sort of pockets uh, where uh, where they wouldn't even have any sort of Christian. Uh, upbringing or any sort of understanding sure. of of the Christian culture, so inviting them to church or inviting them to anything on on a campus uh, is is very foreign. It's very mm-hmm. foreign to them. Yep. Sherry, Ooh. what advice would you would you give to someone who
0: is establishing relationship, maybe even kind of pre-evangelization before someone's even at that bridge of trust? And Pre-evangelization is hugely important, especially. Um, Especially in those those parts of North America, for instance, that are heavily secularized, like Seattle, like Vancouver, um, New York, you know, Mm -hmm. any of the big the big urban environments. Um, First of all, it's relationship, relationship, relationship. One of the most fascinating things, uh, which has been very exciting for us, is to see a lot of the new studies that are coming out that indicate if somebody, even somebody. with no religious affiliation, for instance. They may not believe anything. But if if they have a single positive conversation about faith, it doubles their openness to have another one.
1: A single, so say that again. A single
0: positive conversation about faith. Now, we have to understand what they mean by positive. That's really crucial. Yes. Um, But what we mean by that is they would say, what's positive? Um, I didn't feel judged. And I got to control the conclusions I come to as a result of the conversation. The other person doesn't try to maneuver me or control me. Our our job in these pre-evangelization convert, uh, sort of conversations, um, we're trying we're seeking to build trust, personal relationship of trust, and rouse curiosity. Those are the two early stages. And so it's mostly about asking good questions, evocative questions, mm-hmm. and really listening to understand yeah. their experience from their perspective. But the, what they find is, if I have even one conversation positive, where I was not judged, and where they let me come to my own conclusions, their openness to having more conversations about faith goes doubles. Okay. And the more they have those kind of conversations, the more open they become. So this is a, and and it's interesting what that means is even a one-off conversation. Like I've had these conversations with people on airplanes. Okay. I'm never going to meet these people again. And I remember the first time it happened, I was like, okay, Lord, what was that about? Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) you know, it wasn't like I led them in the sinner's prayer or anything at the end or, you know, and I was, and it was only recently that I grasped. Okay, I'm—I was the link in a chain. Literally, the Holy Spirit said, "Ask the question," and I asked the question. We had this two and a half hour conversation. He never drew breath. He was so—he had so much to say on the subject. Mm-hmm. But it's—I um, was a link in a chain. I wasn't going to be the one who was going to walk with him long term, though I would have been interested in that. But—but but that was—I was that the person for that moment and just by giving him a positive experience I was in a sense opening him up what it does is it lowers defenses it builds trust and lowers defenses
1: I love how you've identified what a positive relationship or pardon me a positive conversation could look like uh, because sometimes the conversations around faith may start from a, a hard issue or a challenge or some sort of cultural uh, div, you know divisive um, topic and th- what's so important about what you're saying here is that the intentional disciple can frame the, the others in experience of that conversation either positively or negatively even though there's there could be a disagreement on principle or on teaching or on, on whatever you're talking about but what you're saying is asking good questions allowing allowing freedom of choice allowing for that process to happen can still be a positive conversation that could lead to further movement in their in their hearts
0: yeah and i ask yeah. the questions that raise raise significant spiritual issues but we're not trying to corral them into. yes a absolutely i think respect of opinion is so important there that people feel heard and listened to um, so listening in a way to really understand that person's point of view rather than to respond with what we believe as catholics as christians and to try to steer them in that direction um, is so critical and i think as catholics so often we get in that in that zone where we're like okay I have a point to prove I have something I want to lead them to and so our our conversation can become manipulative very easily Mm -hmm. um something that we need to be really aware of and conscious of
1: for sure Mm -hmm.
0: I I think the issue is I mean because you're totally right I mean there's so many hot spots that you know we could get engaged in and as an evangelizer it, your job, first and foremost, for people who are far, we're talking about people, mm-hmm. who, there's no bridge of trust in place yet. Our first task. They will not move closer if we don't establish a bridge of trust. So that's our first. And in that setting, um, it's more what, what's behind the question? What's behind, or maybe the statement, maybe they're making this kind of you know, st- political or mm-hmm. sociological statement of some kind and challenging you, the question is, okay, but what's behind that? What's the What's the experience behind that, the human and their spiritual experience, if any? We um, teach people thousands and thousands to have what we call threshold conversations. And basically it's just we're listening for to understand somebody's actual lived experience of God or lack thereof, however beautiful or stunning or horrible or whatever it's been. Um, and, and as you said, if we really listen to understand what it's like from their perspective, um, what happens amazingly is when people are done, if they're really heard, A, we've seen people move the whole thresholds just by being listened to. Mm-hmm. And two, they're often open for new input for new input from the outside for the first time, but they have to get that out of course.